welcome to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we share the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm your host, Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. Last teaching, Pastor Harris discussed David's returning after he had defeated the Amalekites. At the same time David was returning from Ziklag, Saul had met his end and had been defeated by the Philistines. Around that same time, a different Amalekite arrived with the message that Saul had been slain, along with a conflicting story. Last episode, we heard that Saul had fallen on his own sword and committed suicide. This Amalekite claimed that he had actually helped Saul commit suicide. This man believed that since Saul had tried to kill David so many times that he would be rewarded for helping Saul commit suicide and reporting the great news that Saul was dead. Another odd thing was that he also had the crown of Saul and brought it to David. The response of David was quite opposite to what he was expecting. He was expecting honor and approval and maybe a position as David's right-hand man. Instead, David turned and killed the man on the spot. The way David saw it was this. God was going to bring God's anointed, David, to be king in his own time. No person could force that to happen outside of God's timing. It appeared this Amalekite had taken matters into his own hands and had slain God's anointed, and it deserved death. What was surprising is that upon David killing this Amalekite, was David's response. He wrote a fantastic poem, and I'll go ahead and read it to you right now. Thy glory, O Israel, is slain upon by high places. How the mighty have fallen! Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you daintily in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Jonathan lies slain upon the high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? It's very odd to hear such beautiful words from someone who is supposed to be Saul's sworn enemy. But obviously David was a man after God's own heart, and he could see things in Saul others could not see. He loved Saul. However, now the crown of Saul is in David's hands. Saul is slain. David is God's appointed and is to be the new king of Israel. This is the topic of this episode's message. So let's hear what Pastor Harris has to say in this eighth episode of the Saga of David series titled, David Becomes King. The ability of the Israelites to defend themselves was virtually destroyed by the Philistines in the Battle of Mount Gilboa. Thousands of Israeli soldiers were dead. And among the slain were King Saul and three of his sons. The only man of power that survived this battle was the commander-in-chief of Saul's forces, a very important man, and you need to remember his name. His name was Abner Ben-Ner. Now, as we saw in the introduction, David was in Ziklag when he received the news that Saul was dead. Now, Ziklag was located in the area of Canaan controlled by the Philistines, so he was of very little assistance to the nation in the months that followed Saul's death. In fact, the nation had been rendered leaderless, And no one knew this better than the elders of the various tribes of Israel. They were all aware of their leaderless position. They they knew the state that they were in. The chaos became so destructive 
that the men of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Simeon, the two southernmost tribes, decided to act. They said, we can't allow this chaos to go on anymore. This is, this is just wrecking the nation. And so they decided they had to have a leader. And they met and declared David ben Jesse to be their new king. And when the elders approached David in Ziklag, he quickly accepted their edict that he would be the new king. And he allowed them to place the crown of Saul on his head. Then he packed up, and he and his men left Ziklag together. David then made a colossal decision. He decided that he would rule the two tribes. The tribes, now remember these tribes, the tribes of Simeon and the tribe of Judah. He would rule them from Hebron, the largest community in the territory belonging to the tribe of Judah. There he was coronated as the second king over Israel, even though he only ruled over two tribes. The crown was on his head, and he was coronated. Now, this coronation of David caused a powerful reaction from the, from the former patrons of King Saul. In their eyes, now think about this, Saul had been the duly anointed, God-ordained king over Israel. That's the way they saw the situation to be. Therefore, his only surviving son, a young man by the name of Ishbosheth, was the legitimate heir to the throne, not David ben Jesse. So Abner ben Nair was forced to act. He immediately crowned this young Ishbosheth to be the legitimate king of Israel, even though Judah and Simeon had chosen to crown David ben Jesse. Now, as Abner saw things, David ben Jesse was nothing more than an interloper, an imposter. Well, as Julius Caesar would say, when Abner crowned, when Abner crowned Ishbosheth, the die was cast. Civil war became inevitable. David was not about to step down, and Abner was not about to back down. So you had the ram hitting the dam here. The ant and the rubber tree plant. I mean, it's all happening here, right? So within days, a bitter civil war erupted between the two great houses of Israel, the house of Kish and the house of Jesse. Now, what would make this civil war interesting would be the differences between the nature of the leaders of these two houses. Remember now, King Saul had been a very carnal man, right? And his son Ishbosheth was much like his father. Ishbosheth was also worldly, power oriented, materialistic, and self seeking. David, on the other hand, was a spiritual man, a man after the very heart of God. Now, we should stop for a moment and remember something that Paul wrote to us. In his great uh, epistle to the Romans, one of the greatest works ever written, he says that carnality and spirituality are like oil and water. They won't mix. You, you can't mix oil and water, and you can't mix carnality and spirituality. And you can bet that the spiritual man, the newly crowned David, would learn some valuable lessons from all that was to follow. And you and I can learn the same lessons that he did. Now, the real lesson found in this episode in David's life, David's life involves what I call the concept of walking in victory. You know, there is a spiritual victory to walk in. Now, saints, you can be saved and go to heaven when you die, but never experience a moment of victory in your life. That is a colossal shame. We are made to walk in victory. We are made to walk above our circumstances. We are, we are saved to be more than conquerors. But the trouble is, most of us never reach that place. We don't walk in spiritual victory. Now, 
I don't know of another story in the Bible that demonstrates the keys to walking in victory, spiritual victory, that is, any more clearly than they're found in this story that we're fixing to relate to you. Now, the first lesson to be learned from this story is this. Our spiritual enemy, the fleshly carnal nature, King Saul, you might say, will never surrender without a struggle. We see that in his son taking over for him, pursuing the same policies he did. You see, the flesh will always be there to make war. And to walk in spiritual victory, this carnal nature has to be subdued. You see, when we are born for a second time, what does Christ do? He does two things. One thing, he places a crown of righteousness on our heads. The other thing is, he places a robe of righteousness about us. That's the two things that happen when we are born for a second time. But our former life of sin does not just go away because we're saved. We don't get saved and never struggle again. Hello? If you're here this morning and you're saved and you've never struggled a moment with sin, stand to your feet. I always feel safe in doing that. Chris, I will not tell that story. Now, <laughs> yeah, I will. You know, <laughs> oh, this is terrible. The pastor asked that question one morning, and this guy jumps up in the back. Pastor shocked, as shocked as I would be if somebody popped up in the back. And he said, John, are you here to tell me that you got saved, and you've walked in total victory, you've never struggled a bit with sin, and you've lived a life of perfection? And he said, oh, no. He said, I am standing in behalf of my wife's late first husband. <laughs> I, I confess it's really bad. <laughs> now, <laughs> you see, our former life just doesn't go away when we get saved. In fact, I see these carnal elements as being much like King Saul. And even though at this point of time, Saul had been dead for at least a year, right? His bones were buried under a tree in Jabesh Gilead. But his influence, are you with me? His influence continued to exert itself even from the grave. Members of his clan, especially the powerful Abner ben Nair, were determined to keep the kingdom and lineage of Saul alive. In fact, Abner was so committed to this goal that he was willing to engage in armed conflict against the tribe of Judah and the house of Jesse. He was determined that Ishbosheth, the man of the flesh, not David, the man of the spirit, would rule. But let me tell you the tragedy of this decision. It would now pit Hebrew against Hebrew. Kinsmen would make war on kinsmen. And brother would fight against brother. Now, beloved, what does this teach us? It teaches us this, to walk in spiritual victory. We must first realize that our flesh will always arise and make war against us. It's going to happen. Don't get saved and think you're not going to struggle with sin. You are. It'll always make war. Now, this fact, bring, this fact brings to light the second thing I've learned from these events. To walk in victory, we must know who our real enemy is. We believers will never walk in spiritual victory until we understand that we do not battle against other people. 
We battle against flesh. Uh, we don't battle against flesh and blood. We do not make war on other people. Other people are not our enemies. When we fight other people, we're fighting the wrong thing. Our battle is against principalities and powers. And until we know that fact, we'll never know who to fight. I'll never forget. Chris will remember this. One night, my sister came over to my house. She was fixing to move to Hawaii. But before she could buy her airplane ticket, she had to be able to sell her car. And her car had been on sale forever and ever and ever. She had signs on it, parked it on the, at a grocery store parking lot with her phone number and the whole thing. She couldn't sell the car to save her life. Couldn't buy the ticket to go to Hawaii. It was time for her to move out of her place. She didn't know what to do, so she came over to the house. And so she said, I just don't understand why life is so tough on me. I suspected her to say something like that. And she said, it's just not fair. And I said, what's not fair? And she said, everything you've ever touched in your entire life turns to gold. And everything I've ever touched in my entire life turns to... She's very graphic in her speech. And so I said, well, the problem is this. Jan, I, I said, you don't know who your enemy is. I said, you see, the difference between you and me is I know who my enemy is, therefore I know who to fight. You don't know who your enemy is. She said, oh, if you're going to start talking this devil talk to me, I don't want to hear it. Now, I'm not talking to you about any devil. You want to be backward and ignorant, that's fine, but I'm not talking about any devil. I said, well, then you're just going to continue to get your ears beat off because he's your enemy. So, remember, Chris, we started talking. I shared the plan of salvation with her for the 8,000th time. This time she heard. Suddenly she had ears to hear. This time she heard. And I asked her, would you like to receive this free gift right now? She said, yes, I would. We knelt down in the floor, and she invited the Lord Jesus Christ to become the Lord of her life. I said, now, look me in the eyes. Look right in my eyes and say, thank you, God, that my car is sold. She said, but it isn't. I said, look me in the eyes and say, I thank you, God, that my car is sold. Don't sit here and argue with me. Okay. She looked me in the eyes and said, I thank God that my car is sold. I said, now, understand this. It's not sold in the physical realm, but when you uttered those words, it was sold in the spirit realm. Now, go home and collect what's yours. She hadn't been gone 15 minutes. She lived, what, Chris, two miles away from us, three miles? She hadn't been gone 15 minutes. Phone rang. She said, you're not going to believe this. I said, oh, I probably am. And she said, a guy just called me on the phone and wants to buy my car, and he's offered me, I don't remember how much, but anyhow, it's what she wanted for the car. And said, he came over, and I asked him, do you have any kids? And he said, yeah, I've got five. And she said, well, I don't think I'm interested in selling you my car. She didn't want to sell her wonderful car to somebody that kids would get their feet in the seat. Well, she said, she said if it's that easy, <laughs> the next day, she said that she, all night long, every time she'd wake up, She'd say, God, I thank you that my car is sold. Next day she walked into work and the guy she worked with said, Jim, is your car still for sale? Single guy. She said, yes, it is. He said, but I'd give you X amount of dollars for it, which was $2,000 more than she'd been asking for. After that, she began to understand what had been the matter most of her life. She had an enemy. She didn't know who that enemy was. She didn't know how to fight him. She didn't know that you fought him with the words of your mouth. 
in the meditations of your heart. Changed their life. Now, Abner and his cohorts, the fleshly nature, chose to fight the wrong enemy. See, that's what your flesh does. It fights against the wrong thing. It wants to get after other people. It doesn't want to go after the real problem. They didn't understand that David ben Jesse was not their enemy. The Philistines were their real enemies. But as long as Hebrew was fighting Hebrew, what's going on? The Philistines were growing stronger and stronger. Nobody was fighting the problem. They were amassing more and more weapons, trading more and more chariot horses, forging more and more armor. And this was too was tragic. And as a Christian, I, I believe I can relate to what David experienced while he was residing in Hebron. He knew that Saul was dead, right? I mean, there's no question. As Andrew said this morning, somebody brought him the crown. He, he knew Saul wouldn't give it up while he was still alive. But there was no question about this. He knew that Saul would no longer pursue him or make war against him. Saul was dead to David. Now, I want you to get this picture. Saul is dead to David. David doesn't have to deal with Saul anymore. Saul was dead to David. So, what has this got to do with you and me? Let me try to answer this question on a personal level. You see, for the first 29 years of my life, I had an enemy that relentlessly pursued me. This was like King Saul, this enemy was, in a sense. The enemy, this enemy ruled my life. It would not let me alone. This enemy was incorrigible. It made me miserable, this enemy did. Now, this enemy is called the condition of sin, and this condition made constant war against all that was highest and best in me. And then, after 29 years, I was born for a second time, I became a new creation, and the first thing I did was open God's Word. And as I read the book of Romans, which is incidentally a great place to start if you're a new Christian, as I read Romans 6, I suddenly discovered that according to the Apostle Paul, as a new creation, I am now dead to sin. As dead to sin as David was to Saul. That sin that besets me is dead. In other words, it no longer reigns in me. It's just as dead to me as King Saul was dead to David. Let me repeat it again. In fact, listen to these words from Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. Now listen carefully. Likewise, you also, now look at this word, reckon, now that word in Greek means consider, strongly consider something. So we might say, likewise, you also strongly consider yourselves, as much as it's possible for you to do so, to be dead indeed to sin. We could put Saul in there, couldn't we? Dead indeed to Saul, sin, flesh, the devil, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, therefore, when you do that, when you reckon yourself dead to sin, what happens? Therefore, do not let sin reign like King Saul in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. It's dead, so don't let it reign. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Now, we are dead to sin. You see, a dead Saul could no longer pursue or harass David. But there's something else David knew, and that thing he knew was this. 
even though Saul was dead, a civil war was being fought by the house of Saul. And the civil war kept David from dealing with his real enemies. You see, the real enemies, as I said, was the Philistines, but he couldn't concentrate on them. Right? The same is true of us, even after we're born again. We are caught up in a civil war, a war between our flesh and our spirit. And, beloved, this war is brutal. I still have to fight it. Why? Because I don't always reckon myself to be dead to sin. I start acting as if it's a lie. It's brutal. Now listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 24. This is powerful. For what I'm doing, now this is my own personal testimony as Paul Jr. Everything Paul Sr. experienced, I've experienced. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Do you ever do that? Why did I do that? Hello? Do you ever ask yourself, why on earth did I do that? For what I will to do, that I do not practice. I will to do one thing, and I practice another. But what I hate that I do. Why did I do that? If then I do what I will not to do, I agree that the law is good. There has to, in other words, there has to be a law to keep me from going nuts. There has to be something to contain me. But now it is no longer I who do it. Who's doing it? Saul. He's still alive through Ishbosheth, the fleshly nature. But sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I do not find. I don't know how to do the right thing. Okay. For the good that I will to do, I do not. Yeah, there are people who teach that Paul is talking about how he used to be. But have you noticed the use of present tense? Yeah. Everything's in the present tense. He's not saying this is how I used to be, saying this is how I am. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Personal testimony, folks. Now, if I do... What I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. My spirit, the David in me, says, wow, come on. Come on, God. But I see another law in my members. Okay, Another law in my members. Warring against the law of my mind. What do we got here? A civil war. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me where? Into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. That's why sometimes, as we were talking this morning, you can't control your temper. 
Why? Because the residue of Saul is still present. And then he says this. O wretched man that I am. Boy, I get it, don't you? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, we're just like David, aren't we? In spite of David's death to Saul, the presence of Saul would not go away even though Saul was dead. And what's more, it kept David from doing what he knew he'd been crowned to do, and that is fight and defeat the Philistines. Now, all along, David believed that he had the power and the resources to defeat these Philistines, but the power of Saul's house, the power of the fleshly nature, what the Apostle Paul calls the old carnal nature, kept raising its ugly head. And so the spirit man, David, continually exhausted himself fighting the carnal man, Ishbosheth. And with this constant struggle, this civil war taking place, David simply did not possess the strength or the stamina to fight the Philistines. And, beloved, the same thing is true in the spirit realm. Many of us cannot fight against Satan's kingdom because of the constant internal war we're fighting. Now, meanwhile, don't you think the Philistines were overjoyed as they observed the civil war that was being played out among the Israelites? And I find this to be, frankly, to be highly significant. In fact, I find that every actor in this drama relates to my life in the world and my struggle to achieve spiritual victory. For example... If I, if, as I suggested to you before, the Philistines represent the satanic forces that are arrayed against us. I'm talking about the principality and the power, Satan and his kingdom. And those malignant forces shriek in glee when they observe our inabilities and our weaknesses. The civil war that's going on within all of us. Now here's lesson three about walking in victory. We'll never walk in spiritual victory until we allow our spirit person... I'm talking about the David in us to subdue our flesh, the Ishbosheth within us. Now, David knew that, and I know that. Now, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Are you ready for the good news? If you're struggling and you're fighting a civil war that's going on, let me give you some good news. As time passed, David was obedient to God, and he learned to rest in God's protection. So what happened? As he began to rest in the Lord and quit fighting himself and quit exhausting himself in this internal civil war, his house began to wax stronger and stronger. And in the spirit realm, we know this growth is sanctification. Now, there are two ways to look at sanctification or inner cleansing. That's what sanctification is talking about, inner cleansing. How do we get rid of this sin nature? What, what is it about? Well, there's two ways to look at it in the church at large. There are some who believe in instantaneous and total sanctification, where a person becomes dead to sin as a present fact. Now, this is called Christian perfection, the doctrine of Christian perfection. Now, I cannot accept this position since that's not been my experience. Now, if it's been yours and you have been smitten sinless, I'm all for you. I wish that would have happened to me, but that hasn't been my experience. As a matter of fact, I can remember when I was pastoring in Lamont, and I got a call from a Mrs. Smith. That's literally her name. I'm not making the name up. Mrs. Smith lived catty-corner to the church. She called me one day, and she said, Pastor, we're having a birthday party for me over here at my house. Would you like to run over and have some coffee and cake with us? And I said, yeah, that would be awesome. That'd be great. So I ran across the street. I came in, and she's got a big birthday cake there. Cuts me a piece of birthday cake, gives me some coffee and little porcelain teacups. 
So she knew I wouldn't drink tea, so we are drinking away. And I said to her, uh, Miss Smith, I said, I'd like to, you know, I wonder would it offend you if I ask you how many years this is for you? Well, listen, this woman was 85 if she was a day. And she said to me, this is my 55th birthday. And I couldn't speak. I thought, man, you have been worked over. (laughs) You must have lived a hard life. (laughs) And she said, Pastor, I see you're shocked. Why do you say that? (laughs) Yeah, I am. (laughs) And she said, you see, this is not my 55th birthday for my natural birth. It is the 55th birthday of my supernatural birth. It has been 55 years since I've sinned. And she said, Pastor, don't you understand the doctrine of Christian perfection? Why, 55 years ago, God took all desire to sin from me, and I haven't sinned since. And, of course, I just take this vicious thing that rests in my mouth, and I stuck it between my teeth. Because the next thing that was coming out of my mouth is, I hate to tell you this, but your sinless career died today because you lied. <laughs> because that hasn't been my experience. I've not met very many people like Mrs. Smith who would claim that suddenly they just were rendered sinless. Now, there are other Christians. Now, you want, Pastor, where do you stand on this? Simply here. I believe that sanctification is an ever-ongoing process. As we see ourselves being dead to sin... As we understand that Christ conquered it on the cross, we are a part of an ongoing process. But I also recognize that because of my fallen nature, because of radical depravity, as long as I'm in this physical body, I am going to struggle with the flesh. But as we become stronger in the Lord, as we rest in Him, as we quit fighting our enemies and allow him to fight the battles for us, we begin to subdue the flesh. That's been my experience. And just like the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker by the day, so does our fleshly nature when we are resting in God. So what does this tell me? It tells me two things. One, that walking close to God, and two, the passing of time, represent the two best friends we can possibly have in this internal civil strife we face. And as we walk with Christ day by day, our spirit persons go stronger and stronger, and our fleshly nature becomes weaker and weaker. It doesn't cease to exist. It just becomes weaker. Now, I know all about this. When I first entered the ministry, I was a new Christian, and no one struggled with the flesh any more than I did. Yes, even as a minister, I struggled with the flesh. I could see far more. I mean, if I would examine myself, I could see far more of the, of the fruits of the flesh working in my life than I could see the fruits of the Spirit. Oh, I would lose my temper at the drop of a hat. I'd tell people off and, and you know, just, oh, just generally obnoxious. I, I look back at that and I just hate myself. I don't like that person I was. I'd often 
find myself crying out with the Apostle Paul, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? You know what I mean? I, 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 I cried all the time. But soon the answer began to reveal itself to me. As Paul said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, I had to come to the place to understand that the battle was his, not mine. I simply had to rest in him. As long as I was out fighting every enemy that showed its head, I wasn't having any victory. But one by one, my great foe, the flesh, began to fall before me as I focused on the Christ in me. Now today, there's very little opposition left in my life. The enemy no longer sails me as he once did. That temptation is not nearly so hard for me to resist. Now I can dare to assault Satan in his stronghold. See, my energies are not used up on this internal civil war. So now I'm free to fight the real enemy, the forces of evil. I'm more like David. Well, when this great civil war ended, and it finally did after seven years, seven years this went on, this war ended between the house of Jesse and the house of Saul, and David became the king over all of Israel, all 12 tribes. And with that crown, the 12 tribes sitting securely on his head, he was finally able to focus on the Philistines. And David and his army attacked them, and in short order, he had put them away forever. You see, like our fleshly natures, they were still there in their five cities. Now understand this. David defeated them. He crushed their ability to make war against him, but they were still there. But they were subdued. And now with his real enemy held in check, David could listen to the voice of God. And God did speak. He said, David... Go to Mount Moriah. Go to the city of Jerusalem. I want you to take that city to be your capital, and I want you to build a permanent house for me at that place where Abraham built his altar. I want it to be my habitation on this earth. Now, there was just one problem. Jerusalem was still in the hands of a tribe of heathen aliens known as the Jebusites. And for over a thousand years, these aliens had been able to defend this stronghold of theirs, Fortress Jerusalem. In fact, this city had proven to be impregnable against all attacks. Even the mighty Joshua had not been able to subdue this city. So for a thousand years, Jerusalem had stood as an enemy bastion in the very navel of the land that God had promised to Father Abraham. Now, David knew. That Israel could never be a united nation until Jerusalem had been subdued. And once again, this story from Second Samuel provides the highest form of spiritual symbolism. What was true of David and the children of Israel is true of us. The Apostle Paul instructed the Corinthians that an enemy lodged in the heart of the human personality must be dislodged. A Christian simply cannot walk in victory until all the enemy strongholds are torn down. And all of these enemy strongholds are what? They're spiritual in nature. So the strongholds cannot be defeated on the carnal level. You can't fight against them carnally because they're spiritual in nature. Only spiritual weaponry is effective. Carnal weapons are useless. Now, in the case of the city of Jerusalem, David had a plan to enable him to subdue the city. He knew that army after army had laid siege to the city. But every attempt to take the city had failed because their tactics were external. They attacked the strong walls of the city and were defeated. 
And they used carnal weapons, things like swords and bows and arrows and battering rams. But David's plan was not carnal or external. Rather, he chose to attack internally. He knew something about Jerusalem that a lot of people didn't know when they came with their armies. He knew that there was a vertical shaft or a horizontal shaft cut through solid bedrock with an opening located inside the city. And the tunnel led outside the city walls, underneath the city walls, to outside where the walls were. And then there was a vertical shaft cut straight down to the water chamber of the Gihon Spring. Why was that important? It was because when the city was besieged, they still had an abundance of water. You couldn't uh, starve them for water. Now, this was the city's greatest strength. The, staff, the shaft was so steep that the Jebusites believed that no enemy could enter the city. And therefore, they'd reached the place after a thousand years that they didn't guard that access route any longer. David, the spiritual man, says, I'm not going to attack externally. I'm coming internally. The spirit man makes war against our flesh from the inside. Not from the outside. And what had been an enemy stronghold? David sent Joab and his mighty men. And they came to that vertical shaft. And they looked up. And Joab said, I think I know how to climb that. Joab ascends to the top. Drops a rope ladder. The Israelites come into the city. And they take the city without one person dying without a sword being lifted, without an arrow being shot. See, that's the way the Spirit works. The Spirit comes and subdues, but not with carnal weapons. He comes in and does His work in us, perfecting us, making us creatures that God can use. Now, with that, God would be in the heart of a once pagan city. The spirit man would now rule Jerusalem, and as a result, would rule Israel. The conquest was complete. Now remember this, beloved. We battle not against flesh and blood. People are not your enemy. People are only responding to that spiritual presence in them, and if they're on the side of the principalities and powers, they're going to do things that they're not responsible for. We can't stand in judgment of them. We need to address what causes them to act. You got an evil boss that fires you? Don't hate the boss. Hate the spirit that's working against you. Know who your enemy is. Find out what my sister discovered. That if God be for you, who can be against you? You are more than a conqueror through Christ who strengthens you. Let Him be your warrior. Meanwhile, you rest in Him. I love the lesson of the creation of the universe. God works mightily for six days. And the seventh day He rested and as far as the Scripture is concerned, according to the book of Hebrews, he's still resting. But if he call upon us to do in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews, rest in him. 
Let Him, through the Holy Spirit, be our advocate. You'll find you'll walk in victory. Okay, that's my teaching for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Aerial Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at aerialministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Aerial Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Aerial Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit aerialministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thoraka mission, you can visit aerialministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future. 